if I was writing more than, certainly more than three hours a day, I was definitely approaching diminishing returns. If I go four, five, six, seven hours, it's negative returns. What does that mean? It means the manuscript is now worse than if I hadn't touched it that day. So it's not just that, like as soon as you're at negative returns, you have to stop. You should stop no matter what you're doing. But even getting, and it takes self-awareness and maybe it does take a coach as well to be able to come in and go, okay, you're reaching diminishing returns. This is not actually helpful or healthy. Even if that's the dominant culture, even if that's what you see other people around you doing and saying and pushing beyond those limits, these are, these are actually damaging you, uh, damage, damaging your overall performance. And so, and so it's a subtle message in a way that I'm trying to, to make and a case I'm trying to make. But there is, there is a path uh, that, that I think is necessary for mastery in any field. Uh, and and, and it, it is this, this sort of effortless path. We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run. Always chasing. Never stop. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. Ben and I are... Honored to be joined by Greg McEwen today, author of a book that we've talked about a whole bunch on the show, Essentialism, um, and also the new book, Effortless. Um, You're also the host of the podcast, What's Essential? So if you like this conversation, do make sure you check that out wherever you are listening to this. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great. Great to be with you, Patrick. Great to be with you, Ben. All right. So I'm excited to dive into this. We, um, Like I said, Ben and I have talked about essentialism, certainly a whole bunch on this podcast. I think um, Ben has, I don't think we can see it in the in the video, but behind him, he's got a, a shelf of books that are kind of his, what do you, what did you call them, Ben? Like your go-tos or your yeah. must-reads or you have a name for them? They're, they're favorites. They're favorites, yeah. Right there. Essentialism yeah. is right there. And essentialism is always on there. I love that. Thank you. I'm just, so I'm just, want- I'm just glad you read it. <laughs> ha, more than once. <laughs> Yeah. I remember actually when Ben first read it, he, uh, you actually listened to it. And I remember at, being at the gym and you rolled your window down and you were like, this is, this book is amazing. You were like a chapter into the audiobook, And I was like, yep, I was like, perfect. Just his voice, his, his, <laughs> his, his fake British accent is so spot on. <laughs> you know, I once, All right. on that, on that note, I once did a video, uh, just a small part in a, in, in this video and somebody was watching it. And they said to their roommate, they're like, come here. You've got you to listen to this guy. He has the worst fake British accent <laughs> I've ever heard. And the person that they said it to happened to know me. So they knew that it wasn't fake, but it made me feel, you know, great. I, I, my, I, I can't even get away with my real accent. What, what's going it. on now? It's like the, it. the, the culture of today is like to second guess everything. <laughs> everything's fake. Everything's fake. Amazing. Yeah, everything's a conspiracy. All right, Greg, uh, I'm excited to dive into this. I wanted to start in a spot where when I was reading Effortless, uh, and it's early on in the book, um, it, it took like I took notice of this because this felt like if you buy this, the rest of the book makes sense or the rest of the book, you're certainly open yourself up to the rest of the book. And so I've got a, I'm just going to read a quick section from Effortless. And I'm also um, going to read a quick section from Essentialism because I think that there's some 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 certainly some ties yeah. And so this is from Effortless. All too often, we sacrifice our time, our energy, and even our sanity, almost believing that sacrifice is essential in and of itself. The problem is that the, compl- uh, is that the complexity of modern life has created a false dichotomy between things that are essential and hard and things that are easy and trivial. It's almost like a natural law for some people. Trivial things are easy. Important things are hard. So that's from Effortless. And then this little section from Essentialism. The way of the non-essentialist is to go big on everything to try to do it all, have it all, fit it all in. The non-essentialist operates under the false logic that the more he strives, the more he will achieve. But the reality is the more we reach for the stars, the harder it is to get ourselves off the ground. So I wanted to start there because I think myself, Ben, our audience, like I think we pride ourselves in the in the choosing of the difficult way, of the pursuing the challenge, of, 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 of um, judging something to some degree on how difficult it is to actually accomplish. And so again, like I said at the start, like I perked up at that because I really, because just being made aware that, okay, there is 
Like that's an assumption we're making here, right? And and effortless seems built on like, let's knock that assumption down and see what happens on the other end of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously this podcast is about chasing excellence. It's not about chasing exhaustion. <laughs> and that's a really important difference because yeah. in order to achieve excellence, you have to find a pace and an approach that enables you to perform well, even superbly well, in a, a sustainable way. There's no other path to excellence that I know of. And yet many people's approach to achievement is, is so, let's say, um, extreme or intermittent that they go big only to get burned out almost mm. at the very beginning. They like, collapse for a while, uh, have to recuperate uh, just because... And, and maybe they never even get back on. And so they're over almost before they begin. Uh, what, what I'm interested in, uh, you know, personally and in the work that I do is how to achieve, you know, superb performance, breakthrough performance, but in a way that you don't burn out so that you can keep on doing it week in, week out for years, for decades even. And so I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, it seems like there's this... Um you know, to, to, to go big. And that's certainly what, um, you know, society and we all are, uh, what gets glorified now is if you don't have the, the Lamborghini on social media, if you don't have this, that, or the other thing. And I, I think that one of the, the bad bag of goods that we're, we've all been sold is, um, it all, you know, particularly in the entrepreneurial world. And that's certainly the world that I operate in is we've been told it's about your work ethic and it's about your hustle. And if you don't, you know, Elon Musk has said it, you know, he's like, if you, if you only sleep four hours a night instead of eight hours a night, that's four extra hours of work you get in every single night across, out of across a week, you get an extra work day and every week and you can, and that's kind of what we've been told is like, you gotta, it's about the grindstone. It's about the work ethic. It's about busting your hump. And to that extent, it's almost like we're, we're, um, we are putting busyness on a pedestal like that almost like busyness is success in and of itself. If you have a really busy schedule, if you don't have time to do the other stuff, that has become a metric of success. And um, I love that, you know, um, certainly essentialism and effortless takes the next notch, dispels that myth a lot. And you've, you've gone and say like, it's, it's kind of built in, you know, we live in the, in New England and you're kind of like, this kind of stemmed from like this New England Puritan kind of like uh, mindset approach of like, just work hard. Like it's about working hard. Um, how do, how do we go about kind of dispelling that? Because it's been ingrained in us since we were kids, it's about like, you're supposed to do three hours of homework. You're supposed to play three sports a season. You're supposed to um, not get sleep. You're supposed to be busy. How do we go about unwinding that default programming that we all have? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, one of the ways I summarize what you're describing here is just that burnout is not a badge of honor. Like just even stating that clearly, you think you don't have to explain that, but you turns out that you do. Um, in fact, uh, someone I saw this on social media. I thought this is interesting. Someone took a picture of that page from the book. Uh, they have about five thousand followers, and it was liked forty-two thousand times, mm-hmm. which just gives a sense of like something was hitting a nerve. Yeah, that there's something about this that is topical right now after a year and a half of this pandemic, everything just sort of draining people and people have tried to achieve in a certain way. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it, the whole thing, I mean, this just isn't actually what produces sustainable peak performance. Like it's just not true. It just has the, 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 you know, that's, that's the only thing that's wrong with it. it it's, it's not, it's not true in the research. It's not true in practice. Uh, that, you know, uh, burnout is not the way to achieve su- superior, sustainable performance. And so if somebody's interested in doing that, they've got to find uh, an alternative path. Uh, and, and so I think, you, I think you do need to start by recognizing how deep, uh, deeply ingrained these ideas are. 
and, and then I think you have to choose a new soundtrack uh, to use John Acuff's term for this. So, for example, I was just talking to a, a, an elite trainer, uh, works with, uh, uh, you know, Olympic athletes in Canada. And he said that, that they've had to retrain people from the phrase of no pain, no gain even. And one of the phrases that they use as a new mantra is run fast, not hard, mm. uh, which I think is a great phrase, uh, you know, an alternative phrase. We're not, if you imagine trying to run hard and how damaging that could be and how, 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 uh, how forceful that could be, uh, we don't want that. You want fast. You want performance. You don't want damage. Uh, another mantra that I love, this came from one of my wife's mentors growing up, uh, is never force anything, uh, which I, I just think is, a, is it's not what you normally hear. It's not what you think, but it's to me, it's a really powerful one. Here's another, uh, you know, another mantra. Uh, this is from uh, Firas uh, uh, Zahabi. Uh, have you seen this? It was on, it was on Joe Rogan. Uh, and he has a whole segment on this, but he, he starts this. Think of how contrasting this is to normal, uh, you know, soundtracks in this area. He said, I'm a, a big believer in never being sore. <laughs> he's talking, he's like a trainer of, of these, uh, you know, of, of elite um, mm. uh, fighters. And everybody thinks the same thing. You have to burn yourself, burn yourself, crush yourself. And he just said, he said, no, if he, if he's training people right now, I know not everyone believes this. I know it, it it's, I'm, I'm attacking sacred cows in a way to talk about it even. But he, he said, if he said, for example, give this, he said, if Joe, Joe Rogan interrupts him, he says, he says, well, you're not, you're talking about like people who are already like athletes. You're not talking about someone who's never exercised before in their life. And he's like, no, I mean, if you have never exercised before in your life, this is how it should go. He said, if you come in, and I say, okay, do, do, you know, see how many pull-ups you can do. Uh, and the most somebody could possibly do, like it would kill them to do 11, they can do 10. He said he would have them do five. Day one, five. They, they're not going to ache the next day. They're not going to be super sore the next day. Then day two, you do five again. Day three, five again. Day four, five again. He said, he said someone who maxes out day one, they're going to have to recuperate for one or two days. And then... And then by Thursday, by the fourth day, they're doing trying to do ten again. He says, "I've already got my, I've already got, had my person do 20, 25 By the time this person is trying to do their second set, he said that repetition is actually what produces this great breakthrough performance. So I just think there's a lot to be said for dismantling this old, let's call it, either Puritan way of thinking or the 1980s kind of motivational speaker type mindset that's actually been you know, is, is proven to be, to be false in the, in the, in the, in the most up-to-date research uh, and, 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 and discover new mantras and a new approach so that we can achieve breakthrough results and without burning out. So that, that um, is going to, everyone that's listening to this right now in the CrossFit space is going like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, like, come on, Ben, like, say it's like that's not, wrong. That, that's not how we do it right yeah right yeah but, he, I'm, but no but I'm, I'm here to actually um give some credence to what you're saying in in the exercise physiology world there is science backing up exactly what you and the other mantras and guests that you've you've spoken to are alluding to and it's called the the curve of adaptation and what happens is when you train so let's say I have, let's, instead of the pull-ups, let's have, um, let's have Greg, let's imagine that your very best one mile time mm. is eight minutes. Mm. If I have you run a, um, a mile at eight minutes and I said, tricked you, go run again right now, run another eight minute, run another mile. Mm. It's impossible for you to run the second mile at eight minutes or even anything really close. Actually, if you give a true best effort mm. and what we're saying there is when you train, people have heard this. When you train, your muscles are breaking down and you're creating lactic acid and you're creating waste product. Your performance actually gets worse by training. So in the example you gave, when the person is doing more pull-ups, they're not getting gains. They're actually digging deeper and deeper holes. Then what happens is when they stop training, there's a compensation that happens 
And if you rest long enough, you come back through homeostasis and create a super compensation where you are now stronger and fitter than you were before. And then you get another stimulus, another adaptation, and the curve should be trending upwards where when you train, it goes down, but then you stop, you rest, it comes back up, you rest long enough, you create a, another a super compensation, another hit. And if people in the CrossFit world that are listening to this, if it might not be a matter of the frequency, because you could go to the gym every single day, but it could be the matter of the intensity. And in our space, this is something that we've had a, a hard time um pulling back from because we've been told that intensity is an independent variable most commonly associated with favorable adaptations. And it said, no, intensity is the shortcut to results. That's true. That is true. If you focus harder on typing, playing classical violin, driving a race car or working out, you will learn the craft faster. Dot, 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 enter Greg to a certain point. It is intensity. It is not maximal intensity. And that's what happens. And that's what people get busted up with is what Greg just said is if you have the person, they can do 10 pull-ups or 11 and they do 10 or 11. We're not supposed to work out to our maximum. You're supposed to work at your threshold. If you don't work hard enough, you don't create a response. If you work too hard, you dig too big of a hole. And it's this fine little area that we need to play with. And it takes really seasoned veteran athletes to be able to do this or enter a coach. Like this is what a coach's job is, is to say, this is where we should be right now. And that's why there are trainers and there are coaches. Otherwise it is the responsibility of the athlete for our listeners in their everyday classes to figure out what is that level that's going to give me an adaptation, but not put me in the hole at all. Um, and this is what we practice and do with all the time with our athletes. So um, I don't want people to kind of just like brush over this, be like, he's no, that's not, that's, that's not what CrossFit is. Yeah. Cause it no, is. We, we, we came straight to, came, came straight to the, uh, to the jugular on this. I love, I love everything you just <laughs> shared. It, it reminds me of the, the importance of, of not getting to the point where you ignore diminishing returns and start moving even into negative returns where you make the whole thing worse. I mean, negative returns, no matter whether it's whether you're somebody's physically training or whether like they're trying to write a book, for example, where I spend a lot of my life is, is in that space, you know, like, so let's use the example of writing a book. You, you, if, if, if I was writing more than certainly more than three hours a day, I was definitely approaching diminishing returns. If I go four, five, six, seven hours, it's negative returns. What does that mean? It means the manuscript is now worse than if I hadn't touched it that day. So it's not just that, you're like as soon as you're at negative returns, you have to stop. You should stop no matter what you're doing. But even getting, and it takes self-awareness and, and, and maybe it does take a coach as well to be able to come in and go, okay, you're, you're reaching diminishing returns. This is not actually helpful or healthy even if that's the dominant culture, even if that's what you see other people around you doing and saying and pushing beyond those limits, these are, these are actually damaging you, uh, damage, damaging your overall performance. And so, and so it's a subtle message in a way that I'm trying to, to make and a case I'm trying to make, but there is, there is a path uh, that, that I think is necessary for mastery in any field. Uh, and and, and it, it is this, this sort of effortless path. It, it's, it's a way that course it's not giving no effort uh, but it's recognizing that that not all effort is created equal and so you're looking for a high return on your effort high ROE so that you can achieve as we said before breakthrough results superior results great performance but without burning out you said a couple of times, Greg, um, or you used the word sustainable a handful yeah. of times now already. And I'm really curious if we can't unpack that a little bit, because it seems to me when we talk about, you know, burnout or hustle culture or any number of the other things we've already talked about, even stuff in the gym that Ben and I see all the time, there seems to be, it seems to be done with, without a thought of, well, what can I do this next year? Or can I do this in a year? Can I do this for five years? Can I do this for 10 years? And a lot mm -hmm. of what I'm hearing from you is, if you put that question first, if you say, is this sustainable? What is the maximum sustainable pace I can hold? 
then you at least have to look at it a little bit differently. You've got to ask yourself a different set of questions. And so I'm wondering from you, having thought about this so much, like, why are we so bad? Why are people so bad at thinking kind of sustainability first in things that we should be thinking about sustainability a lot, whether it's running our businesses, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our health, we seem to default to whatever the opposite of sustainable is. Is it that we're impatient? Is it that we're easily distracted? Is it that we don't have, we're not doing it with intention? Is it because we're, we're kind of addicted to short-termism? Like what is the cause of our lack of sustainability uh, or a lack of sustainability thinking? I think it's a lack of faith. Uh, you know, like faith is the evidence of faith is evidence that you can't see yet. Mm. And, and if you don't believe that consistent performance will achieve the outcome you want, then you want to rush the process and force it. You know, as, as they say, you know, pulling up the, you know, pulling up the roses to see how the roots are doing. Mm. You, 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 you violate a consistent process because you don't believe it. The people don't believe they can become wealthy or, you know, financially successful. So they want get rich quick scheme because they don't believe it will actually work. Uh, people, people don't believe that they can build the body that they want and, and have, you know, the health that they want. So they want to get results right now. And so I think, I think it, it is a maturity thing that as you start to believe in the process and trust the process and say, no, this will get there. We just need to be able to design systems that work sustainably, uh, that, that, you, that you start to go, oh, that actually is the key. The secret mm -hmm. is really um, is hidden in plain sight. Uh, Warren Buffett said it, that, that, that the, the problem is, is people want to, nobody wants to, um, nobody wants to be rich over the long run. <laughs> everyone wants to be rich right now and that and that that causes all sorts of false approaches and so if you can discover like if you can find a pace that is and i think the the effortless pace isn't no effort no effort isn't effortless ironically mm. <laughs> it, it, it you feel guilty you're not doing the things you you want to do you're not making progress on stuff it's like a dark playground you you, you trivially you're on your video games whatever else you're doing instead that isn't effortless. It's it's quite painful and strenuous. But but on the other hand, too, you don't want to go so extreme that for all the reasons we've just described. So I think you do have to say, look, what's my kind of uh, optimal max? And then you go a step below that so that you can be here again tomorrow and the next day, the next day. Uh, an example, and some people may have heard the story before, but I, I, I write about it in Effortless uh, because I I just loved the story and I went back to some of the original sourcing. This is, <clears throat> and I think it's good for people that like a physical challenge, right? Because I'm not saying don't take on a physical challenge, take on the greatest challenge you want in life. Fantastic. The question is, is how do you achieve something that may seem currently almost impossible to you? Uh, so this is, uh, this is in the midst of the great age of exploration, right? We're talking like the early years of the 20th century. Uh, the most sought after goal in the whole world was to be the first to reach the South Pole. Now, not everyone's trying to do it, but everyone is saying it's like the space is the, the, the moon race of the, of the, of the age. Um, it's never been done before, not by Pythias, uh, you know, in 320 BCE when he was, uh, when he was traveling the world, not by the Vikings for a thousand years, not by the British empire and the Navy, the British Navy, no one had ever got to the South Pole. So this is like impossible. It's impossibly hard. Uh, people have tried it. They have failed and so on. So then there's this now, the race to the poles. There's two teams. There's a Norwegian team, a British team. Um, <clears throat> they both set off at about the same date. It's about the same journey. They go from slightly different places, but uh, 1,500 miles to the, to, to, to the South Pole. That's their goal. There's a, a, who's going to be the first to ever do it? The British team uh, approach it in a certain way. Captain Scott, who's in charge of the team, he goes, okay, on the good days, we are going to the absolute max. We're going to go beyond as much as we possibly can. It's a good day after all. Take advantage of it. And they would try to do it 50 miles, just try to max out. Then on the bad weather days, they would just be so exhausted, they would hunker down in the tents. And we know how he felt about it all because he wrote about it in his journal. He would say, you know, these were... 
Uh, you know, no one has ever had such bad luck for weather as we have had. We have more terrible weather than anyone ever before. And actually, that's like numerically not true. It was actually better than the predecessors experienced, but it felt like that for them because it was so worn out and so on. I doubt that anyone could, you know, could travel in such weather. But another team could, and this was the Norwegian team. They simply made a rule early on. Amundsen, the, 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 the captain of that team, said, said we're just going to go 15 miles a day. He's going to have an upper bound and a lower bound on performance. Uh, so, so even where, on one of his uh, journal, uh, journal accounts, he said, it has been an unpleasant day, storm, drift, and frostbite, but we have advanced 13 miles closer to our goal. So it's not no effort. They're making consistent you know, pursuit in good times and bad. Okay, now the plot thickens when they get within 45 miles of the South Pole. They have perfect weather conditions, and they know that if they push completely to their limit and even past it, they can make it in one day. And furthermore, they don't know what the other team is doing. They don't know where they are. They know that they could be ahead of them. They have no idea. So they have this choice to make. And still, he says, no, we are going to do it the 15 miles. And he does, takes three days to do the last 45 miles again, averaging 15 miles per day. They average 15.5 miles the whole way. They are the first there. They, they beat the alternative team by 34 days. But they're also in health and sustainable health enough that they can make it the, the 6,000 miles back uh, out, of the, uh, out of the South Pole. Meanwhile, the British team uh, get there late, exhausted, burned out, so burned out, in fact, that they all die on the way home. So, you know, completely tragic outcomes. But in that, to me, powerful story, well, let me just add one more thing. One of the biographers uses this phrase to describe uh, the Norwegian team's success. He uses the phrase, he says, they, they reach their destination, and this is a quote, without particular effort. <laughs> that's breathtaking. That's shocking. How can you say without particular effort? This thing had never been done before. This is under, they are traveling under the world's harshest conditions. And yet, he says, they achieved it without particular effort. <clears throat> to me, there's a lot in that metaphor for people who want to achieve extraordinary things. People believe that extraordinary, impossible-looking outcomes must be achieved through superhuman, almost impossible exertion of effort. And it turns out that while there's a sort of logic to that, it's actually not right. If you want to achieve superior performance, if you want to do something extraordinary, something on the edge of impossibility, you have to have a system that's as normal and sustainable as possible. I mean, I, I, I just was—I just was talking. Uh, I'm monologuing here, but but the—I uh, I was just talking to um, <clears throat> to Michael Phelps' coach, uh, and he said those eight gold medals. He used a phrase similar to it. He was like, "We not only did it, which was beyond." any imagination, even though he had been saying, oh, yes, we can do this, this is possible. He was like, I never really believed, you know, I never fully believed. And then he said, not only did it happen, it happened. And it, I can't remember quite the phrase, but the tent tone of it was like, yeah, it kind of happened effortlessly. It just, mm. it was just like no problem. And then he said, one of the things my jobs in the Beijing Olympics when that happened was to, was to help make the process this abnormal process feel as normal as possible. We were following all sorts of routines and systems and we didn't mess with any of them so that he could just do the work itself without strain and stress and frustration. And so, so there's, there's a key here, which is that you need to build systems, routines, you need to build um, upper bounds to be able to protect yourself through the inevitable ups and downs of the journey so that you're still here, still there, still performing, still executing. With, with the, such a phenomenal story, by the way, and I, there's so many parallels I could draw upon in our space, in our world, from um, nutrition to being an entrepreneur to um, um, competing in a, a high-level CrossFit event to people that 
we just saw in this past weekend of the people that wanted to win so badly an individual event that they blew up and that they ended up coming in ninth, 10th, or 11th instead of just taking a second, which would have put them in the longer, in the long run, a much better position. Um, so there's, there are so many parallels. My, my, I, I, there's so much to the, the building the systems, creating, designing the systems, making them as normal as possible, as sustainable as possible, putting the routines, the upper and lower level boundaries around them. Greg, without, or maybe, I'm not, I don't want to say without, how does one go about creating the, without, here it is, without the, without the experience and expertise? Because I get it. If you've done the South Pole three or four times, you mm-hmm. would understand what it takes. If you've run 10 marathons, you would understand <clears throat> what it takes to train for a marathon. If you've um, coached 600 people through weight loss programs, you understand. What, but people that are experiencing this and want it for the first time that have never done it before, what's the process of creating the process? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I certainly think that I mean, you've, you've got to go, if you can find someone who's done it before, then that, of course, is tremendously advantageous. When I decided I wanted to write books, I mean, the first thing I did is I said, okay, I'm going to go and interview as many authors as I, as I can. And I did. And even like I was just in my early 20s at the time and sort of miraculously people took time to, to talk with me. And, and I just was, was, I'd saved so many problems by, by doing it that way instead of just pure on your own trial and effort, this reverse engineering what people know. Now, that doesn't guarantee your success, but it certainly reduces your risk of, of catastrophic failure in what you're trying to do. And I think that, I think what you're trying to do by gaining, by, by, by gaining m- mentors is that you are, you're putting in some effort. I mean, it does take effort to go read from people who know and have been there and done it and to, uh, and to go and interview them directly. Of course, that takes some effort, but it's quite modest effort. It's a high leverage activity to go and discover the best of what others know. Uh, and and to, to, to really, um, you know, this is um, Munger, uh, the right-hand man to, to Warren Buffett, uh, who, that, that, you know, that's one of his quotes is like to go and, you know, go and learn the best of what others know. You, 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 you're, you're trying to create, he said, a lattice work of mental models so that you can start to understand a bit better how the world actually works and what you're trying to achieve. Uh, and, and so it's, a, you know, to stand on the shoulders of giants is, is an accelerator. It's, 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 it's accelerated learning. And, and I, I, I certainly think this is, you know, this is one of the, uh, you know, one of the high leverage um, strategies you can use to help execution be more effortless that first time around. Don't try and do it on your own. Learn the best from everyone who's done it before. Uh, and you'll find, you'll, you'll find the, the path significantly easier than if you just do it alone. What are some of those other high level, high leverage activities you found? Mentorship. What are some other things that like across the board, I don't care if you're trying to write a book or climb Mount Everest. These are the type of things that you should be kind of like everyone should kind of be implementing into their routines, practices, systems, strategies, process. Yeah. I, I mean, let's just make a distinction first and, and then we can talk about some, some the answers to, to your strategies. I mean, like there's a really important distinction between doing something, getting a result once through putting in effort, right? Like one-to-one linear results versus building systems that produce results for you or at least enable you to get results again and again and again for the same effort. Now, this is, this is one of the key ways in which I, I, I say effortless effort is not equally, you know, that not, not all effort is created equal. Um, let me give an example that's inspiring to me. A friend of mine, Jessica Jackley, uh, and then husband and a, a group of friends went to Africa trying to make a difference there. While they're there, they come across an entrepreneur who's selling produce uh, on the street, right? Like that is her, that's her business. Uh, so she's got, she just, but she has to be there every single day to make just enough money to feed her own family. So this is, this is a perfect example of like linear results. If she doesn't go, if she doesn't turn up, her children don't eat 
So like now she has to turn up, but there's no space to create anything else. Her system is just is just a certain very limited system. So if they come in and they say, well, how could we help? Well, it turns out a micro loan of about $500 would allow her to build a better system. So that would mean she could go to the fisheries, she could go to the to the farmers and actually get supply of those of that produce uh, directly without a middleman, increase her profit and therefore be able to get results that are more sustainable for her. She could miss a day and it would be okay. She can have enough money to be able to start building up a store and getting ahead. Okay, so that is a distinction between linear results and, and residual results. But they built a system on top of a system. Instead of saying, hey, we want to just give you a loan for this, for this $500, they said, what if we could build a system that produced loans for people like this? That was also, you know, that was itself sustainable. So they built, they did, this is exactly what they did. They built an organization, uh, you may be familiar with it, Kiva, uh, which has now given $1.3 billion in loans. So they could have done $500 or $1.3 billion. <laughs> to me, that's the difference in building systems that produce results for you, that come back to you. And most, most my experience for the for people who are in the hit squad, right? What my brother Justin calls uh, the hit squad, the hardworking, intelligent, talented people. That group, most of those people are limited, not because they haven't worked hard, but because their systems uh, are insufficient for their next level of success, whatever it is. And and when I work with people who have achieved, who are very successful in whatever field they've pursued. It is for sure, and like I'm saying, like 100% of the time, it is the systems that they have built that distinguish them. Because the loads of people are willing to work hard, but most people tap out because they're, they're like, well, I can't work any harder. I've run out of space. And, and if they do try to work harder, they just burn out and they get worse results over time. So it's about recognizing the need for these systems. Uh, you know, to answer your question, I mean, accelerated learning, we talked about that. Another thing which isn't as obvious at the first, it's like to, to teach is something, if you put yourself in a teaching mode, mm-hmm. you are going to learn at a much faster pace, first of all. Uh, you know, anyone knows this. If you, if, you, if you think you learn a lot reading a book, uh, go write a book. Uh, you know, you're going to learn so much more about, you know, how other people think and so on. So teaching is helpful for that purpose but it's also high leverage in achieving the results that you want. I'm thinking there's this example in the, in the beginning of the pandemic when you suddenly needed all of these, um, you know, these, these masks, these, these you know, medical masks, and they suddenly are just completely, it's none of them, there's no supply, and they, they needed it. In Utah, a group said, you know what, we need 5 million masks in five weeks, and no one can produce those in, in the normal way. But how long would it take one person, let's say, to do 5 million masks? It's ridiculous, right? It's unthinkable. They want to do it in five weeks. And the way they did it is they made a really simple process. They created a video for it uh, that taught people how to do this. They said, well, you come and pick up the supplies, watch this five-minute video, you do it, and then you teach it to other people. You get them to watch the video and so on. Within one week, they had produced a million masks. Within five weeks, five million masks. So teaching is, you know, in, in inverted commas, it's not just teaching, but, but scaled teaching is a way, is a, is a high leverage, uh, you know, a strategy to be able to produce residual results. Automation uh, can work against you too in some ways if you if you build it wrong, but uh, automation is something that's uh, in, enormously powerful. Uh, I was just talking to somebody who, I said, what's something essential you're under investing? And he said, well, eating healthy. I said, well, unpack that for me. He said, well, about 11, 30, 12 every day I get, I get hungry, but I don't eat. Uh, so it gets to like three in the afternoon. By that point, my willpower is gone. So I just go and get fast food. This is the pattern. This is the this is his kind of his routine. His automated, not really automated, but his habitual uh, tendency. Uh, I said, okay, how can we make? How can we create residual results? One time, build a system so that this works for you forever afterwards. Uh, and he said, um, it actually didn't take but two seconds. He's like, you know, what? I just need to get one of these apps and sign up for a service that delivers the food at my office every day at that set time. I said, okay, what's the first obvious step you can take? Let's let's not forget about the thousandth. Let's do it the easy way. What's the first thing? He said, I just have to search on Google for an app. I said, great. What's, what can you achieve in 10 minutes? What's a micro burst of effort that you could put in? And there's like this awkward pause. He says, uh, I think, um, he said, I think I could do everything. 
the credit card, select the, the food, choose the dates, everything. 10 minutes. I say, how long are you struggle with the problem? 10 years. How long is it going to solve it? It takes to solve it. Ten minutes. So that's that. That you know, automation. Oh my goodness! I that, that's so much possible within that single item. Uh, four or five is is trust building, hiring high trust people, building high trust agreements with them, so that they can perform superbly with or without your input, with or without you managing. If you hire someone you don't really trust then you aren't going to be able to, that you're going to spend more time thinking about them than if you were doing the work yourself. It's enormously costly. But if you, if you say, no, I want, Warren Buffett gave us three eyes for selecting them, high integrity, intelligence, and initiative. Uh, if you, if you hire people like that, it, everything's easier. Uh, and then the, the fifth area is, 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 is kind of a counterintuitive one, but it's prevention. Uh, where you say, if I build a system that prevents the problem I've been managing all this time, instead of managing the problem, I want to prevent the problem. It takes a little more investment of effort up front, but what else can you call it but a residual result? If something you have previously had to manage every day for years, you suddenly don't have to deal with ever again. Uh, you know that That is a, a super high leverage activity. To me, those are five powerful strategies, high leverage strategies for building in uh, results that start to flow to you. Maybe an odd question, but <clears throat> I can imagine for a certain kind of person, let's just say they, they, they buy in, they read the book 12 times, they, they build the effort, <laughs> effortless life. I can imagine that, that one, you know, one of the things that I think comes from executing on a lot of the things you're talking about here that you have in the book is you have space. You've got slack. You've got the ability to take up, you know, take the proverbial deep breath. Maybe an odd question, but how do you make sure you then don't just fill that time and that yeah. space and that slack with more stuff? Yeah. How do you make sure that you 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 create the systems again to stop yourself from going right back into the whether it's the non-essential stuff or it's just the more stuff because oh I can take a deep breath and now I've got time for something that maybe <laughs> I, I didn't think I had time for and now suddenly I'm I'm back at the the effortful life. I was just having this conversation with someone, um, big name in Hollywood. And he just says, he says, I'm so guilty of this. We keep building better and better systems. He's got 50 people that work for him now. And, and it just keeps on having more and more ideas. <laughs> um, and he just keep, he's got all these projects. I just, I just actually taught him and his whole team who we were teaching essentialism and effortless and so on. But he said, like, that's the problem is that, is that as soon as I build the system, oh, now look at what I can do. Now I can do even more things. And, and I do think that that is a challenge, a challenge of any insecure overachiever. Uh, and I'm very sympathetic. I feel like that often myself. Um, I mean, I think that what you, one of the things you need to do is you have to say, what are the, what are the unintended costs of perpetually maxing the new system? Uh, they're, they're, they're definitely there. Uh, the unintended costs may be, uh, I'm so stressed that my wife and I never really have a good relationship anymore. You know, we don't really spend time together anymore. We, we, you know, we're okay, but we're not, we're not building it. Uh, if you have children, you know, I'm not really there. I mean, I'm not I'm just distracted all the time from them. So I think it's seeing the costs to just perpetually loading, you know, you, you, your system again and again and again. Uh, I think that's, that can provide motivation to creating boundaries. And I think that that's, that's critical. In fact, this is, um, uh, Ben, you, uh, you, I'd heard, I didn't hear it originally from you, but I heard it from a mutual friend <clears throat> that you'd set a boundary of 525, leaving the office at 525. And when he was telling me this, cause he's like, he's like, Oh yeah, Ben got into essentialism. He's like super essentialist. And, and he tells me that story and I'm like, Oh man, I'm being, I'm being like shown up here, man. I'm being like, <laughs> I'm being out essentialized. And I, I liked it because I want to be inspired by other great essentialists. And, and, and I'm, I'm definitely in the learner mode on this. And so I started, uh, well, I remember talking to you about this, Ben, that, that, that you did this about, you, you actually kept an account of this for three years. And you, you estimate about 75% of the time you did that, which I think is a great stat for this. There'll be exceptions to any rule. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I did the same thing. I chose five o'clock as a time to leave the office, right? I'm literally physically in the office here, get back to family, be engaged with them. 
Because I found, based on experience, that if I just maxed it and kept going, yeah, there are some advantages to that. There can be and some disadvantages, but there's a definite cost to the experience I'm going to have once I go and join the family. Everyone's going to be hungry. Everyone's going to be grumpy. The The third act of the day is not going to be pretty. And those are the most important people to me in my life. And, and yet I'm not going to show up well. They're not going to show up as well as they, they would otherwise. So if I finish at five and what I did is I would go like a town crier uh, and just announce it to the house. It is 501 or whatever time it was, you know, because nobody wants to. Once you get established on this, no, I never wanted to be the. And I did have to do it one day. 523, 523. You got to do what I do quieter that day. It, it was a fun way to keep accountable. And it helped me avoid some of the, I think, quite serious challenges people have had over the last year and a half, where they get into a Zoom, eat, sleep, repeat world, where six o'clock, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, there's no end. And in fact, they don't even know what day it is, because the pandemic removed what few boundaries used to exist even before the pandemic. So I think it's counting the costs. Of, of boundaryless systems and also putting those boundaries in place. That, that, that would be one of the things that I would suggest, Patrick. Love that. This, um, can you, I, I love the, the hit squad, hardworking, mm. intelligent, talented. What was the second I? Or no, was there that, another I? No, that was it. Hardworking, oh, okay. intelligent, talented. Okay. I'm used to hit like high intensity interval training. So there's two. Oh, yeah. there, must have, there must be another I in there. He somewhere. spelled hit wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you spelled hit wrong. Yeah. Is there, so um, that's, that's our audience. That's, that's who we were talking to. So that's, this is going to resonate so well for them, but there's probably a lot of people that are going, um, I get it. I need to slow down. I need the proverbial breath. I need to um, create boundaries for myself. This makes a lot of sense for me, but um, my dot, 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 coworker, brother, my spouse, my um, significant other, like my parents, like they're the, they're the lazy ones does, or they're the, they're not the hit people. Does effortless apply to them or is, or should they get off their hump and be busting their ass more? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, the, the book is written specifically for highly engaged people who are on the edge of exhaustion. It's written for otherwise successful people. Yeah. It's written for achievers and overachievers. And, and I, I mean, both essentialism and effortless is really to that group. Uh, and, and what I found is that that group is self, self selecting that, that, is a much broader group than you maybe originally imagined. People across many different industries write to me and say, oh yes, in the teaching industry, we really need effortless. That was today that that happened. Oh my goodness, we just so need that. And and you, I don't know whether people would perceive, oh yes, that, that, that would be an industry you would really need this in. But as soon as you think about it, you go, oh my goodness, they're in the class all day and then they've got all this work to, to market. Imagine what they've dealt with in the last year and a half. And you're like, of course, you know, they're gonna be in this category. That people reach out to me, they're in medicine. And that's kind of more obvious. You're like, yeah, okay, that's that's a culture that has celebrated and ena- enabled ridiculous levels of burnout uh, as, a, as a rite of passage. Now, never mind that the research does not at all support that they learn more through the residency type hours or that they contribute better or safer. Uh, the research shows exactly the opposite, but the culture is what it is. So culture kind of dominates for a while and you it's kind of the equivalent of bloodletting. It doesn't work, causes loads of damage, but it's culturally what everyone does for a long time. So everyone keeps doing it. Uh, and, and so, so I think it, I think this is to a very particular kind of audience. Uh, but I think that, um, well, let me just say one other thing about this. I think that there is a group of people who probably look like they're lazy, but actually something else is going on. So in one sense, it is right. They've got to get up and do something. They've got to go up and actually go exercise. They've got to get up and, yes, there's something to that, but why aren't they? And if you just say, oh, well, they are just lazy, 
You know, they just can't be bothered. I think it's a bit too simplistic. I think in lots of instances, it's because um, it's because they perceive the things they want as being kind of impossibly hard. It's an overwhelming. So it's not that they. It's not that they, they, they're not in the category of like, I started and I got burned out. It's like the thought of the work burns them out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it's a bit like, you know, if, you, if somebody puts up a slide, if you go to a presentation, someone puts up a slide, it's got 500 words on it. Mm-hmm. You don't like, most of us don't read 300 words and give up. You do the pre-scan. You're like, am I ever going to read that? No, I'm never going to read that. <laughs> and you're done with that slide. You are never reading those words. There's too many. And I think some of those people on the couch, like you're describing, I think they do the pre-scan and they're just like, no, I'm just not that guy. I'm just not like that. I'm not right. intense, incredibly feisty, fierce, dominant hero. That's not. Who. And so they think that this isn't for them. But that's part of the cost of this hero, uh, heroism, uh, you know, paradigm is that people who don't associate themselves i'm not gonna i can't sleep four hours a night i'm not that person give up because they, before they've even begun oh, that's so and and i would i do think there's something in effortless for that group too to say it doesn't have to be so hard you you can achieve incredible things in 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 a different approach i i, I met a, um, a woman um, who who at 40 years old she barely written any music in her life uh, she was on a uh, she was on a softball team in the U.S. and two things happened in the same like week or something. She broke her ankle, I think, leg or ankle, and her TV broke. And so she was like, I mean, she had she'd been a music major in college. I don't know if she didn't finish the degree, but she'd spent some time doing music. But she'd not written anything in twenty years. And then she's got nothing left. She's got a piano at home. She starts creating music, and she just took on a steadiness. That to me, no one would describe steadiness as breathtaking, but it is to me. She just started creating music day after day, just a little bit, carried on doing it, and on and on and on. She has written, I think, 1,200 songs now. Oh, my God. Uh, 80 albums. Uh, You know, she's been on, her music's been on, like, the inaugural you know, U.S. presidents inaugural stuff, uh, prayer breakfasts on Oprah. I mean, just all sorts of places. Her music has, has influenced the whole world. I actually uh, got to know her and her family and uh, roomed with her when I was at college, uh, they, they, and so I got to really know them. And I wanted to be a writer, right? You know, even back then. And I was like, ah, I'm writing this book, writing the books, and she's like, oh, I just decided I wanted to write a book actually. And I, I wonder how she'll do as a writer. Well. 11 months later, she had written, finished her book, and I was still writing mine. And all she did, she said, I'm just going to write two stories a week. And it's just the stories behind the, the songs. And so she wrote, you know, she wrote 100, and it took her, whatever that is, 50 weeks. And and that was it. She was done. Didn't overthink it. Didn't under... And, and the, like, that's, that's the power of what we're talking about today. And she's just gone on and on to achieve this great thing. I was just talking to her just recently. She's uh, she's had a couple of strokes now. She's really in the, in the, the, the um, you know the encore of her life. She said, "I just have two more things I want to finish. I want to finish my biography, and that's pretty much done now. And I've also got this project at the university where I'm talking about every single piece of music, how I came to it, and they're just recording it all for the archives. And when I'm done with that." I'm done, and I'm just praying that I can make it through to complete these final projects. Isn't that powerful? What a story of someone who just through steadiness and not giving up, you know, that's the kind of person in one sense who's on the couch right now, in one sense, who just doesn't, doesn't know that you can achieve in this not, in this not Elon Musk approach, uh, in, this, in this alternative way. In fact, I think most of the success in the world is produced in this way. Uh, and not in the extreme heroic way that makes for good stories. Uh, you, 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 it's, it's hard to write about. Stuff. Well, you know, they've been very steady this month. Uh, they've been steady again, uh, steady again, steady again, and another year, and they've been steady. They keep on going. It doesn't make a great story, uh, but it doesn't make it less true. Yeah, I love that. The, um, 
you know, the, the, the easy parallels to draw in our, is, you know, people with nutrition and people go like, oh my gosh, like to actually do this thing and to actually look like Katrin. Um, so you're saying I got to work out six to eight hours a day and I have to weigh and measure all of my food, never have a drop of alcohol, never have dessert again for the rest of my life, which is basically what Katrin does. That's basically minus one, maybe two days a year. That's literally what she does. So people go like, the absurdity of that, the impossibility of that, like I'm not even going to start. They're looking at the slide with 500 words. They're talking about the South Pole and they go like, nope, not going to do it. As opposed to just like the bite-sized chunks, like I'm going to write two stories a day. Like I'm just going to, you know, I here's like, I was just coaching somebody through this um, nutrition this week. And I was like, here's the, all I want you to do is be good for, for two, two hour sections of the day. That's it. Be good for two two-hour sections of the day from um, 8.30 to 10.30. Be really, really good and be really, really good from 2.30 to 4.30 because that's people's witching hours. Mm. It's like they get they get home from there. She gets home from her workout and she, um, she had no structure. She had no systems. She had no boundaries whatsoever. So the fridge would just call her name all the time and then – um, she, she'd either like, no, 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 no. And then to your story, give up and like binge and do whatever it was. And that night it was the glass of wine while cooking. And then it was the food and then eating off the kid's plate and all the rest. And it's like, just make it, there's no, no nutrition. I'm not giving any nutrition advice. There's nothing about what to eat and what not to eat. It's literally just like, be good for those two hours. And first week she lost, and this is already a lean, very, former college soccer player, still young, um, vibrant, works out every day. So she doesn't have a lot of weight to lose. But the first week she lost six pounds. Hmm. And it was like, and now she's like, oh, like, so like the wheel got spinning, right? Like she started like the, the proverbial flywheel. Now all of a sudden, like the next week's push is not as big and as hard. Um, I also really like this idea of like, yes, this is for the overachievers, the achievers and the overachievers. And it seems to me like as you were talking, the really – because you were talking about teachers and you were talking about um, – I forget what the other one you mentioned medical, was. Medical. Medical people. Oh, perfect. Yeah. It seems like people – when you combine these hit squad with people that are following a passion, mm. like it seems like that's the danger demographic because they're doing what they love. They're hard chargers. And that's the people that burnt and my God, like I'm going to throw my community in this coaches. Like I see this all the time with coaches because they've done it. They are now doing what they love more than anything else in the world and they're hard chargers. So it's, there is no off switch. There right. is no buffers. There is no Greg saying it's five Oh five. It's like, <laughs> it's, there's no, and as you said, it took me years and years and years to figure out how to create some um, boundaries and buffers and all the rest. And um, what's really interesting is I did that for about three years, as you mentioned, from about uh, 2015, 16, 2018 or 19 or so. And I, I was like, this isn't really – I was like, I'm getting bored of this. It's not really working. I, and I stepped away from it, from recording and tracking all. And it was – being home by five o'clock, um, sorry, six o'clock, leaving by 525 was one of about 20 things I was tracking. Hmm. And I stepped away for a year or so. And then all of a sudden I felt myself like slipping away, mm. slipping towards like, the word that honestly comes to mind is like confusion. Mm. Like, I don't know what else. It's like, mm. I don't know if this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know if I like what I'm doing anymore. I don't know if I'm on the right track. I don't know if mm. like, I have the same relationships I once did. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go back to what I was doing. And mm. lo and behold, so it was this lack of recognition, lack of awareness, lack of uh, – the word you used is the right one, faith, right? Mm. Um, the, the evidence you can't see because you're in the middle of it so much, you don't even see what's happening or it's the the results are just on the other side and you give up right before you dig the last dig to the gold mine, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's this – well, you, I'm asking you, do you feel like there's this level, I think Patrick alluded to this in the beginning, a certain level of, and maybe it's the word faith is a better one, but patience that comes along with this? Because for me, that's what it ended up being was like, listen, you might not get the success that you want tracking and doing the things you are saying are truly essential for a year. 
for two years. For me, it was three years of doing this and I didn't see the payoff. So I was like, mm. I'm stepping away. Mm. And then what's crazy is, this is, I'm, I'm kind of just giving my own story, mm-hmm. stepped away from it for a year, year and a half, 18 months or so, went back to it for a year. And now all of a sudden, like it's all, ha- it's all coming together. Mm-hmm. It's just like, uh, I, so for me, it, if there's one thing I, I would give to people is do it for the sake of doing it, not for the sake of gaining the result. It's almost like you do it, the process isn't of itself, is the reward. If you have this kind of like in um, exercise science and coaching, it's the art of letting go. It's like just let go of the desired results and just f- fully get back to the things that you know you should be doing. Is it faith? Is it patience? What is it that's required in order to be able to do that? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that helps um, is is to make a distinction between um, uh, between being in the gap or in the gain. Uh, the so gap had, or the what? Did you say the, the gain? The gap or the gain. Gain. The gain. Oh, the gap or the gain. Okay. Uh, and and this is um, uh, Benjamin Hardy had him on the What's Central podcast, and he was the one that put that question to me that way. Are you in the gap or are you in the gain? And the okay. gap is where you're focused on the distance between where you are and what you want to achieve, which is always exists. As soon as you have an ideal, as soon as you have a set of goals you want to achieve, mm-hmm. as soon as you learn about something someone else has done that you haven't done yet, there is gap. And it's not that gap is somehow inherently bad, but if you live in it, if you're focusing only on the gap, it doesn't matter how much you achieve. It literally does not matter what you achieve, you will still be unhappy. Uh, you will still feel frustrated. And so he's saying, look, if you can change some of the ratio and spend some of it in the gain, then you'll still achieve either the same things or perhaps even more, but you'll certainly be happier in the journey. So you focus on the gain means look at the journey I've gone on, look at how far I've come. Let's look at the last, let's say, 10 years. Uh, look, you know, Where were we then? What has happened? What have I learned? What have I become? What have I achieved? And I think that this is, this is a very helpful thing in, in, the, in motivating ourselves to continue on a journey, to help us establish what has been called the, the long obedience to a single principle. Uh, that that that's actually the 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 you know, far more likely um, path to superb performance is to be able to be steady over a long period of time to a single goal to a single outcome. Uh, but that as you're going on on a day to day basis, you celebrate every success you've had, every success you are having right now. Uh, let's get specific here. Uh, one thing that I learned is the following. After I complain, I will say something I am thankful for. Uh, That single rule uh, revealed for me how much I currently complained, how much I was in the gap, because it was just all the time. I mean, and I think of myself, and I think I probably even am quite positive, optimistic, future-oriented, and so on. But still, I noticed that when I was talking to my wife, talking to my children, well, why are you doing that, uh, you know, to one of my kids? Why aren't you back on here? Let's get... And it's all about the complaint. And so I found if I even just got the ratio of 50-50, it would improve my experience in life and their experience in life. Now, that's one thing I do. I keep a gratitude journal, nothing breakthrough about that, uh, other than to say I've done it for 10 years now. I don't think I've missed a day I don't think in 10 years, uh, so I have, you know, I don't know, 10,000 things I'm thankful for now written down. That's great mentally uh, to every day to try and train yourself from out of gap thinking into game thinking. One of the things that I do that I think is really, really helpful uh, is, is a positive prioritization. So once a week, uh, the research shows that if you if you make a gratitude list once a week, you will get more doing it weekly than daily. You still get something daily, and I do it daily. But the week is a more uh, a, a, a bigger um, reward, return on on that effort. And so what I do is I say, okay, what are the top, let's say, top six things I'm thankful for from the week? 
And so I'm writing all those things out. It feels good. It gets you, it gets you motivated as well, but it also signals to you what is important to you. And so you can just build on them. You can say, you can say, okay, well, what do I want to accomplish this week on those same five areas? So you build on the things that are already going well. So even though it's a gratitude experience, it's actually a prioritization process. And so that becomes like at least the beginner of my prioritization list for the next week. Here are the, here are the six things I'd like to accomplish this week, building on what's already going well. Uh, and so if I could just summarize my answer to this with a, with a single quote, there's two parts to it. If you focus on what you lack, you lose what you have. And if you focus on what you have, you gain what you lack. And I think that's such an important principle. Actually, I'm going to repeat it. If you focus on what you lack, you lose what you have. If you focus on what you have, you gain what you lack. This is critical in keeping ourselves motivated so we don't just go, okay, I'm not getting the results I want yet. And we fall out right before we actually get the reward we were signed up for in the first place. Beautiful. I think that's a good good place to wrap up the conversation. Greg, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure that Ben and I could, could keep asking you questions for hours, but we will let you get back to your day. Um, I hope you come back when, whenever the next book, whenever the new book comes out, we'll do this again. We'll, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep diving deep into these things. Um, again, the, the latest book is called effortless, make it easier to do what matters most. The first book was essentialism and, uh, your podcast is called what's essential. So do go check that out. Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, thank you to everybody out there listening. Uh, Ben and I will be back next week for another episode of chasing excellence. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.